You're listening to Threads Radio. My name's Luke Fraser, and this is The Tonic.
Just a lovely one to start off with there. That's The Light That Fills the World, written in 2002 by John Luther Adams, who's not the other John Adams, if that makes sense. Hence, I presume the inclusion of the middle name. He's a native of Meridian, Mississippi, but much of his music has been directly inspired by the landscape of Alaska, where he lived for around 30 years, initially moving there due to his work in environmental protection and later establishing himself as a composer. His music seems to be pretty profoundly influenced both by the natural world and our sense of place within it. He's talked a lot about this and about the concept of sonic geography as being that region between place and culture, between environment and imagination. And this piece is very much a case in point. It's about changing light, of course, and hence colour, but it seems not so much a depiction of them in any pictorial sense as a sort of physical enactment through process and ultimately form. He's written, Last winter I was struck by the equivalence between the view out of my window and Mark Rothko's use of white in his paintings. The exquisite colours on the snow and those in Rothko's translucent fields suggested to me broad diatonic washes suffused with slowly changing chromatic harmonies. Slowly, I began to hear a new music, stripped to its most essential elements, 
harmony, timbre and texture suspended in what Morton Feldman called time undisturbed. Listening to these all over textures, it's difficult to concentrate for long on a single sound. The music wants to move us beyond syntactical meaning, even beyond images, into the experience of listening within an enveloping whole, a transpersonal presence. These seemingly static fields of sound embrace constant change, but rather than moving on a journey through a musical landscape, the experience of listening is more like sitting in the same place as the wind and weather, the light and shadows slowly change. The longer we stay in one place, the more we notice change. All of which expresses things much better than I could. Anyhow, for me it's a piece that exists almost perfectly between classical and, well, not classical music. Ah, labels. The instrumentation is familiar, of course, but I think it's the complete lack of inflection that sets it apart from so much contemporary classical music. It really seems to exist as a space to inhabit rather than a performance to marvel at. And seeing as he's name-checking Feldman, that must give me a pass to crowbar in a reference to Feldman's masterly Coptic Light, which really writes the book on the depiction or realisation, if you prefer, of the changes of light through music. That was performed by Marty Walker on bass clarinet, Amy Knowles vibraphone and marimba, Brian Penzoni on piano, Nathaniel Reichman electronic keyboard and sound design, Robin Lorenz violin, and Barry Newton double bass. And it was taken from the album of the same name, The Light That Fills the World, and that was released on Cold Blue Music in 2002. So, a tiny bit of housekeeping for a moment. The Tonic has a new website, thetonic.online, which, amongst other things, features links to podcasts of all the shows that have gone out so far, and also an archive of all pieces and recordings featured in each episode, in case you'd like to track anything down. And there's a comments page as well, so if you'd like to have a say on anything at all to do with the show, what you like, what you don't like, what you'd maybe like done differently, regrets, remonstrations, recriminations, etc., then feel free to get in touch or DM me on my Instagram if that's your game, at the underscore tonic underscore. Okay, back to matters in hand, and now something for the springtime.
fresh as a daisy. That's Michael Estelle's Snow White, written in 2015. Now, to be honest, I hadn't heard of Michael Estelle before putting this show together and looking further into Canadian composers. I played some rather brilliant, well, in my humble opinion, music by Linda Caitlin Smith and Cassandra Miller a few shows back. And there does seem to be a lot of great music coming out of Canada at the moment. But anyway, having struck upon his YouTube, I found a load of pieces that I thought were great. And it's just a shame I don't have time to play more of them for you right now. This piece is really a Baroque concerto retooled and reimagined for the 21st century. And I do really like this kind of neoclassical approach, where as a listener you can hear certain parts that could easily be taken for a piece composed at whichever point in history. And then you hear these bits that poke out and sound distinctly modern, or rather because that word is so overused and also misused in reference to uh, modern classical music, let's just say divergent from the historical style. It's as though we can open up a moment in time and explore what would have happened if things had gone in a different direction. What would have happened in the classical music of the 19th century, for example, if Beethoven had introduced jazz harmonies and other such dazzling thought experiments? This piece, like lots of Michael Ostel's, is about the history of science and the lives of scientists. In this instance, Alan Turing, and it's actually one of a series of pieces he's written about him. I think the influence is poetic rather than structural. He said that his pieces are simply the result of having been inspired by the force of concentration and creativity of scientists, their method of work, and the frequency with which they meet society's opposition. And a nice little parallel there for artists, of course. This piece, Snow White, focuses heavily on the open strings of the violin, the essential sound of the instrument, which for Ostel in this piece stands as an invocation of the open-hearted candor with which Alan Turing approached his life. He's written that, quote, Turing took a second-hand violin and a sextant to Princeton University, the violin to be like Einstein, the sextant to chart his course while aboard the ship that carried him there. By all accounts, he never learnt to play the violin well. His brother referred to his playing as excruciating, but he still loved to play and perform for those he loved. His favourite melody was apparently Molly Malone, which he played for his lover, and later for the officers who arrested him. And Michael Estelle continues, He played as a declaration of faith in civilization and the need to strive towards greatness of both heart and mind. I cannot fathom this curious, chatty, sporty, caring, playful, brilliant man choosing to end his life with a bite from a poisoned apple, yet he frequently chanted the morbid couplet of Snow White's evil queen, dip the apple in the brew, let the sleeping death seep through. This fairy tale struck at the hearts of those heading into their own great battle between good and evil. For those who chose knowledge above all else, as Turing did, the apple held a special ambiguity. That was performed by Aislinn Noski on violin, accompanied by Holland Baroque. And it's unreleased as far as I know. As mentioned, that was pulled from Michael Erstel's YouTube channel. Yeah. <laughs> 
such brilliantly animated pieces. That's Anna Soklovich's Ghost One and Troisième Page, Après le Soleil, both written in 2015, I think. From Serbia originally, she's now resident in Canada, and from what I've heard of her music, it has this intensely vivid, descriptive quality to it, drawing as it does on Balkan music and theatre. And in these pieces, as with a lot of her work, an extra musical element serves as a source of inspiration. The first piece there, Ghost One, was based on the American sculptor Verena Baxter's Enzo's Tumpkin, and Troisième Page is a riff on a short film by the Bulgarian artist and animator Theodore Ushev. And the album from which those two pieces have been taken is full of these incredibly dynamic character pieces. They use the string quartet to great effect, with some brilliant textural and rhythmic writing. I love all the scratching and scrabbling, and those little repeating bits in that second piece that sound like sampled and looped fragments of some modernist string quartet or other. All in all, the music for me seems to perform a great feat in that whilst the sound world is one of the austere high avant-garde, the pieces themselves are immediately accessible, a loaded and difficult word in terms of the arts, but whatever. So let's just say completely engaging. And play with not a little bit of panache there by the Bozzini Quartet. It's taken from the album Anna Soklovich Short Stories, and that was released on Collection QB earlier this year. Next up, someone who I have, well, just outrageously really, omitted from including on this show until now. So to make amends, and better than just a one or even a two this is a three if that's even a thing beginning with what it may not be unreasonable to claim as being the most terrifying use of a grand piano in the history of recorded sound.
three gems there by Henry Cowell. You heard The Banshee, The Aeolian Harp, and The Snows of Fujiyama, composed variously between 1923 and 25. So it's pretty common when describing some of the key composers of the 20th century to earnestly emphasize just how ahead of the curve they were in their daring exploration of new ideas, new sounds, new techniques, and so on and so forth. And that's often true, of course, though it can sometimes be surprising to discover just how many innovations came about in more than one place and brought about by more than one person. But the epithet of radical innovator really has to apply to no one more than Henry Cowell. I don't know if there has been any 20th century composer who is just so far ahead of the curve in terms of so many developments. And that's borne out by the fact that he was a direct acknowledged influence on so many of the key pioneers whose names are probably much better known. Bella Bartok, Anton Webern, John Cage, to name just a few. He single-handedly, no pun intended, invented the tone cluster and can lay decent claim to spearheading the concept of extended techniques, particularly at the piano. And he made seminal explorations of atonality, polytonality, polyrhythms, harmonic rhythm, and non-Western modes. Shout out also for the seminal new musical resources that he wrote way back in 1919, which focused on the variety of innovative rhythmic and harmonic concepts he used in his compositions and which would go on to have a powerful effect on the American musical avant-garde for decades after. It was apparently a bible to composers such as Conlon Nancaro. And that's all as well as maybe, but for me it's not just those innovative techniques and approaches, it's also just the sheer breadth of his stylistic or poetic expression. He seems to have been able to inhabit and master completely different worlds from one piece to the next, as I think you get a flavour of in the ones we just heard. The frankly mildly terrifying Banshee was the first piano piece composed to be performed entirely free of the keyboard, using only manual manipulation of the strings within the instrument to produce sound. The piece also required the performer to play the instrument in a new orientation, standing in the crook of the piano perpendicular to the strings, rather than seated at a bench. Meanwhile, the Aeolian harp used what Cowell called the string piano method, Rather than using the keys to play, the pianist reaches inside the instrument and plucks, sweeps, and otherwise manipulates the strings directly. He stated that his inspiration here came from a desire to reinvent the landscape of piano technique, finding new usages and sounds for old instruments without necessarily inventing new ones. And as you may have suspected, those techniques were really the primary inspiration for John Cage's latter-day and much celebrated development of the prepared piano. And I just love the snows of Fujiyama as well. It sounds like a kind of amped up version of Debussy's Orientalist excursions, making some of those pieces sound, well, just a bit quaint and picturesque by comparison. Those pieces were taken from a few different recordings. The first was performed by Sorrel Doris Hayes and taken from the album Sorrel Doris Hayes. It plays the piano music of Henry Cowell and that was released on Town Hall Records in 1997. And the other pieces were performed by Stefan Schliemacher and taken from a couple of albums, the first being American Ultramodernists on the label music production Dabringhaus and Grimm, released in 2005. And the other is The Bad Boys, George Antile, Henry Cowell, Leo Ornstein, and that was released on Hat Art back in 1994.
taking a deep dive there. That's Harmonium One, written in 1976 by James Tenney. Uh, his is one of those names you hear around, but I only really got more acquainted with his music recently. And as it turns out, he's quite a key figure in the scheme of things. He made significant early contributions, for example, to what we now call Plunderphonics, the making of one piece out of recorded fragments of another, along with sound synthesis, algorithmic composition, process music, spectral music, microtonal music, and tuning systems including extended just intonation. Not too shabby a roll call, really. In the 60s, he was a bit of a mover and shaker in the New York scene, being closely involved with Fluxus and composer artists such as Namjoon Paik, Dick Higgins, and Steve Reich. In fact, he was one of the performers at the original exhibition of Reich's Pendulum Music at the Whitney Museum of American Art in 1969. And since the 70s, his focus has been on instrumental composition, sometimes using tape delay, and most of his pieces reflect an interest in harmonic perception and unconventional tuning systems. That's definitely the case with Harmonium 1, the first in a series of pieces for various instruments. It features a pitch that progressively diverges from the structure of the harmonic series, or as far as I can understand it, that gradually moves between its more harmonically complex or dissonant upper reaches and its harmonically simpler or consonant lower regions. You can sense through it a fascination with the nature and potentialities of sonic perception in both an intellectual and a sensual way. Once asked whether he would describe his music as, quote, sound for the sake of sound, he replied that it's sound for the sake of perceptual insight, some kind of perceptual revelation. That was performed by the Scordatura Ensemble and released on the album Harmonium, put out on New World Records in 2018. And next, well, something just a little bit different.
a real trip there. That's The Cat's Dream, written in 1986 by Christina Kubisch. I haven't really played many or maybe even any particularly narrative electronic or electroacoustic pieces so far on this show, having probably tended more in the ambient direction amongst others. But if this is the first, then it's a pretty good one to start with, and maybe I should be playing a whole lot more of them. Christina Kubisch is a first-generation German sound artist based in Berlin, I think, who writes both electronic and acoustic music for multimedia installations. And she's done some pretty pioneering work with electromagnetic induction and ultraviolet light as means of producing sound, which is well worth looking into. A lot of her work is site-specific, often synthesizing audio and visual components to create multi-sensory experiences. And she seems interested in finding sound and music in unusual places that participants wouldn't perhaps normally consider. In the 1980s, she created a series of recordings that have become classics of their genre, including 84's On Air and the 87 album from which this piece was taken, Night Flights. It was out of print for about 20 years before being more recently reissued on important records. The three pieces on it were recorded in Milan between 83 and 86, a city she describes in the liner notes as being a vivid and experimental place. And they're a very interesting hybrid of field recordings, performances, synthesizers, and flute played by Kubish herself. And as a result, they plow a very different furrow to that of academic electronic and electroacoustic music of the time. The Cat's Dream has been described as playing like a Philip K. Dick meta-novel actualized through sound. I love the synth purring sounds a short way into the piece, along with the layering of drones and those mysterious snatches of noise that never quite seem to stick around long enough to ever put a finger on. Dream logic in sound. And it's one of those pieces that seems to stick in my mind a long time after playing it. That was performed almost entirely by Christina Kubisch on voice, seashell, trumpet, crystal glass bowls, flute, natural sounds, synth, effects, sampler, and computer although the eagle bone was performed by Walter Maioli. And as mentioned, the album is Night Flights, re-released on Important Records in 2007.
just such an absorbing and manifold sound world. That's Sculptress, written in 2010 by Nicole Lisey. And she's an award-winning Canadian composer from the prairie lands of Saskatchewan, Canada, and currently based in Montreal. She's been described as a brilliant musical scientist, which really reflects her fascination with DIY noise making, whether that be turntables, Betamax video recorders, or stylophones. Her father was an electronics dealer and repairman, and she grew up surrounded by various gadgets, which she would borrow and often hack to create her own music from. Following a music degree, she's now built a reputation as a composer who can effortlessly integrate these machines into the context of classical instrumental music, whether that be chamber pieces like this one or full-blown orchestras. She said that she loves to blur the lines between what is live and what is coming from the electronic devices. I love the sound of that, she says, when those two worlds meet. And Sculptress is a homage to Delia Derbyshire, who probably, I hope these days at least, needs no introduction, at least if you've ever watched Doctor Who, that is. Nicole Lise has said the piece is her own post-mortem contribution to the Radiophonic Workshop. It extends her continuing fascination, she says, with integrating old technology into new contexts and finding notation systems that convey her ideas for both the traditional and the experimental. That was performed by the Canadian new music ensemble Standing Wave, and put out on their album New Wave on the label Redshift Records in 2017. And now to close out one final gem from Canada. This is Jocelyn Moloch.
X Audi by Jocelyn Moloch, written in 2004. From Manitoba, she's described as writing music that is typically tonal or modal at root, but often expanded with modern touches like extended techniques and coloristic effects. And this piece was commissioned by Vancouver's Musica Intima Vocal Ensemble and premiered by them with cellist Stephen Isolus in 2004. It's a pretty lovely sound world, poised halfway between austerity and lushness, in particular with the cello part, which provides quite an expressive strand against the rhythmic choral writing, and that beautiful final section featuring three soprano soloists echoing the notes of the cello line, providing what has been described as a kind of halo and extra resonance to the sound. She said of the piece that it's an expression of grief and the many stages one goes through when grieving. The music moves us from an inability to comprehend our loss, to passionate cries of anguish, to acceptance and angelic reassurance. And that was performed by Musica Intima and released on the album Into Light on the label ATMS Classique in 2010. And that just about wraps things up for another episode of The Tonic. I should be back in eight weeks time, so early August. You can check my Instagram, the underscore tonic underscore, for show dates. And also, as mentioned, archives of everything related to the show are now up at thetonic.online. Shout out to Rosie, to Nick, and everyone at Threads for assisting. I'm Luke Fraser. Thanks for listening. <laughs>